This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 306. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I'm your host, Riley Bowman, and today I'm flying solo on the host side of things, but I have a really amazing guest on with on the program with me today, and that is Carl Wren of KR Training. And uh, Carl, thanks so much for being on the show with us today, buddy. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, today is going to be a... Get ready, folks. You know, sit down, buckle up, because we're going to cover a lot of stuff in a relatively short amount of time. So, lots to uh, take in. Um, looking forward to it. We're going to be talking about red dots. We're going to talk about the tactical conference 2019 that just ended, uh, wrapped up uh, last weekend, wasn't it? In uh, yes, in Louisiana. That's Nola- right. Just outside of New Orleans. Yep, at Nola Tech. And let's see. We're going to talk about uh, your new book, strategies and standards for self- for defensive handgun training. Uh, that's going to be awesome, right? You got a lot of great stuff. And I mean, if a guy sits down and takes the time to write a book with, with the kind of breadth of experience like you have, Carl, there's got to be some, some good stuff in there. I hope so. Uh, it collected up about five years worth of thoughts that uh, John Dobb and I had been percolating around and things we'd written about on our blogs that we sort of put together into a more cohesive thing, expanded it and added some new information and, uh, I think it's got a lot of stuff in it that's different from maybe any other book that's ever been published on this topic, which is basically why we did it. It's not like another how to practice manual, really. It's it's got some perspectives I think maybe that are different than the average the average gun book. Yeah, well, indifference good, and so I, I haven't yet got my hands on a copy, but uh, I'm going to get one and I'm going to read that sucker. And uh, in a future episode, I'll make sure to report back to the listeners and tell them what I think. But I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I'm going to like it because everything I've read from you, Carl, has been pretty solid information. Uh, so, uh, folks, krtraining.com is where you can find uh, Carl and his website. He's got a blog on there with lots of great articles and insights. So, um, all right. So let's talk uh, first, though, before we get into everything about some sponsors we want to give uh, some some love to. Uh, of course, it's a little bit of self-promotion because ConcealedCarry.com, Concealed Carry Podcast, we're kind of, you know, we run this whole Guardian Nation thing, and it's pretty cool. Uh, so here's the deal. Carl is going to be... <laughs> it's, it's a long day for you, Carl, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because tonight yes, he's going to be joining us again uh, for the Guardian Nation monthly live broadcast, which airs at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. That'll be 8 o'clock Carl's time because he's down in, in uh, Central Texas. And, uh, yeah, so we'll be seeing you back here again tonight for Guardian Nation members only, unfortunately. But here's the deal. we got a special offer. Uh, folks, if you've been on the fence about whether to join Guardian Nation or not, tell you what. We don't do a lot of this kind of stuff, and we do, we've do we done it occasionally, but uh, right now we have a special offer for a 14-day free trial of Guardian Nation, all right? So you've got 14 days. You can log in. You can check out our, our huge library and database of uh, training videos that are available to members only. You can, uh, even in the 14 days, you can take advantage of the uh, 5% discount off of ammunition from AmmoSupplyWarehouse.com. But more importantly, tonight. So here's the thing. You could sign up right now or right as soon as this episode is over and take advantage of that 14-day trial and come join us tonight in the GN Live broadcast with Carl Wren. All right? I'm pretty sure after you hear this interview with him right now on the podcast, you're going to want to come back for the live broadcast tonight where you can directly ask your questions and get answers directly with us in that broadcast tonight. So I'm looking forward to seeing you again here tonight, Carl. Great. And folks, you can take advantage of this 14-day trial by going to concealedcarry.com forward slash try 14 day. Again, concealedcarry.com forward slash T-R-Y-1-4-D-A-Y. Try 14 day. So uh, and I mentioned Ammo Supply Warehouse. That's our other sponsor today. AmmoSupplyWarehouse.com is the place to go. Awesome ammo, awesome prices, awesome people. And Guardian Nation members get 5% off, even off of already good, solid prices, amazing prices. In fact, I priced out their most popular <clears throat> bulk 9mm brass case stuff because I only really shoot brass case. I mean, occasionally I'll, you know, 
shoot some steel case or aluminum case or whatever. But really, I, I just like shooting brass case ammo, good quality ammunition. And I priced out their prices and compared it against a lot of the other big players online for brass case quality ammunition. And they were the cheapest that I found, at least at that time. Of course, prices are changing all the time. Uh, but uh, I know they have great prices, great ammo, great people. Check them out, ammosupplywarehouse.com. It is the place to go to buy ammunition online, especially if you're buying bulk, because a lot of their bulk deals, you can get free shipping, and that is a steal. All righty, so <clears throat> there you have it. Carl, let's jump into it, buddy. So um, let's talk first about the book, actually. So okay, uh, st- standards or strategies and standards for defensive handgun training. And you co-authored this with John Dobb. And uh, tell, tell us real quick, though, Carl, give us a little bit of a synopsis of your background. And also tell us who John is, because I'm sure there's a lot of folks watching or listening today that don't, don't even know who you are or know who John is. So why should we even you know, listen to you? <laughs> okay. Uh, the biggest thing is I've been teaching for about 30 years. Uh, started teaching as a trainer, formally getting paid for it in 1991. And I've been training. I train about 40 weeks a year. We run classes every weekend down here in Central Texas. I've got a staff of a dozen other instructors that work with me. And we teach all kinds of classes from total beginners to, you know, very advanced force-on-force instructor, shoot house, uh, USPSA competition, all kinds of different topics. I host national trainers. And that's probably the biggest thing. I've got about 2,500 hours of formal training in from I don't know, 60 some odd different trainers now over the last 30 years. And, uh, you know, USPSA Grandmaster, IDPA Master, uh, all kinds of certifications from Masada Ayub and Tom Givens and uh, Force Science. I'm going to a Force Science class next week and uh, hopefully I'll pass that and get that certification. NRA, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I've been doing this a long time and I've got a lot of experience teaching people, regular people, not just elite military and law enforcement. There's a lot of trainers out there that all they know how to do is teach from the, you know, from the middle of the pack to the top. They're great at working with the advanced people. Really what I do that I do more than anything is I work with regular people with their actual carry gear to get to practical, useful levels of competence, which honestly is harder teaching, I think, than once you're teaching squared away people that aren't really having problems with their gear you know, you can just call drills and run drills and stuff. And that that's a whole lot easier. The hardest thing is somebody that shows up with a gun in a box and you got to show them how to load the magazine and actually how to shoot it and keep them handling it properly. That's, I think that's the hardest kind of teaching that anybody can do. Yeah. Uh, that's certainly been my, my experience as well. Uh, so you've been teaching a long time and here's the thing. This is this is what what I have observed about you, Carl, is that, uh, like you said, and you, you may, you just, it's just sort of like, rattled off your tongue. Like you're just kind of like, ah, you know, I'm a grandmaster, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but, uh, here's the thing. There are instructors that, uh, are, are, are good teachers, are good instructors, but not always necessarily really amazing shooters. They're usually good. They're usually good shooters, but not like incredible shooters. There are really amazing shooters that aren't necessarily good teachers, but then you got guys that I think this is where you fall in Carl, because, Knowing your history, I know you're an amazing instructor. I've known many people that, I mean, where your name's come up in conversations or they've taken classes from you and you, you come highly regarded as an instructor, right? But well, that's then very, very kind of them to say that. You also shoot really well, lights out. I mean, all right. So recently you had this uh, tactical conference that you attended, uh, which put on by Rangemaster, which is Tom Givens' uh, uh, company. And uh, they do a shoot off every year at the TACCON. And you placed third in the men's division. Like, that's a big deal. Oh, no, well, no, not this year. Not this year. Oh, I thought I it was actually, this year. Was I, that last year? I got, I was, yeah, I was third in the, the summer TACCON last year. So, but yep. I will say, I will take credit for the third place this way. Uh, a guy named Hani Mamani, taking classes from me in the past, who I totally claim as a, as a student at this point, uh, beat me in the first round of the shootoff and went on to come in third. I did finish fifth in the overall match. I finished in a ginormous tie for 10-way tie for fifth place, a bunch of us had shot exactly the same score. Wow. But, but I will say, I mean, I've had I, either I or one of my students have placed in the top five every year that I've been going to the conference, which is like 18 years. I have yet to win it, 
but I have been second, third, fourth, fifth, a bunch of times. <laughs> and uh, that's, I, I'm very proud of that track record that if I didn't do it, one of my assistant instructors did, or someone that was a regular student of mine did, you know? Yep. So I feel like, I feel like we've, uh, we've validated more, even more than the fact that I can shoot is you know, some of the people that train with me can also shoot. Indeed. Which I think is important. It's you should judge instructors by how their students do as well. Absolutely. And and, and that's right. I, I got this year and last year kind of mixed up. I remember reading, I was reading, I was kind of scan, skimming, you know, trying to get ready for these sorts of things and skimming through your blog. And I remember seeing that you'd uh, typed up recently that Hani beat you. And Hani is another great dude and a great shooter. Uh, Absolutely. So anyway, Carl can shoot and he could teach. And the book, you got to go check out. Okay, because I'm sure it's a good one. Like I said, I, I'm looking forward to getting a copy, and we'll, and I will definitely uh, be diving in deep. Um, all right. So, what are some of the, like you, you talked about the book and how you think that there's some 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 approaches in there that are a little bit different than maybe some of the other books that are out there. So, can you give us a little bit of a tease? Like, what's one thing that is kind of a big deal for you, and what you made sure to include in that book? Well, the let me just kind of go through that. There's three sections in the book. The first section is really a study of demographics and gun culture. It's the, my challenge as a trainer is how do I get people to come to class? Mm-hmm. And what I figured out over the last decade or so is there's a whole lot more people with four hours and a hundred bucks than there are with two days and 500 bucks. And so much of what's written and discussed about training, particularly online, everybody's like, oh, I got to go take a two day class from big name trainer. Well, that's good if you have the money and the time, but if you look at the real numbers, we've got a little over a million carry permit holders in Texas. And by my analysis, less than 10,000 of those take a class from anyone in a given year. So that means 99% of those people are not coming to training. And honestly, Hmm. the second part of the book is a discussion, John's discussion of what should people be training to as a real standard, not the state carry permit standard, because we're, we're really not fans of state carry permit standards. They're not based on anything more than politics and a desire to make sure everybody passes. You know, right. And if you're carrying a gun for real, the question you need to ask yourself is, how good do I need to be to be well prepared to defend myself in an actual incident? And so if you work backward from study of what happens in real situations? What are the distances? What are the times? What are the skills? You know, our list of what you need to be able to do and how good you need to be able to do it doesn't look like any state carry permits list, right? And it's yeah. not, you need to be a USPSA grandmaster, but you probably need to be about twice or three times as good as your state requires you to be to get your permit. And that's really the thing that motivates John and I both is we want people to be well prepared should they have to use that gun for real. We've had students that have done it. I've had assistant instructors. I have two assistant instructors that have been involved in shootings, uh, one in law enforcement, one in private sector life. And, uh, you know, those, those things matter. And so the, the book, the first two sections of the book is all about how to get more people into training, how to motivate people that are not in the, in the 1% that, are motivated now to get to training. And then the last part of the book is the data kind of thing about, okay, here's the different scales of all the different drills that are out there and the progression of, okay, I can do this drill at this level. Okay. I'll work on this next drill till I get to this level. And that adds more skills. So we actually have a list of 10 drills that you can go through. They get harder and harder and tax more and more skills as a way to give yourself, you know, there is a, it is a structured training program, but it's only t- 10 drills and it gives you goals and it works you up from essentially NRA basic pistol novice level to IDPA master. If you just follow those 10 drills and work on the skills to the goals that we put in there, it's a really simple training program. And so mm. the third part of the book is, is a little bit about how to train, but most of it is really about why, why to train. Mm. And that's, that's the part I think is important because there's so many folks that I run into, at least here in Texas. Oh, I'm good. I got my carry permit. When's the last time you practiced? Oh, I can't remember. Have you ever drawn your pistol from a holster with ammo in it and, and Hmm. did anything like that? Oh no. Well, that's what you're going to be doing in a real situation. So maybe we should go practice that or learn how to do that. Uh, That's really, you know, that's, that's the strategies and the standards part of it is, is to try to get people woke up to the idea that, the state standards are not the standards and try to get trainers around the country to start thinking in terms of 
if they're local trainers, make your training better, become a better shooter yourself, and then offer some classes that go beyond. Don't just rely on two-day classes because there's a whole segment of the market. Those folks are never going to come to two-day classes. They don't have the money. They don't have the time. They don't have the interest. But if you can get them to a single four-hour class that teaches them how to draw from a holster, that's good. You know, that that moves them ahead of where they where they were before. Yep. And so I think there's a big untapped market of people that would come to shorter classes if they were, were more widely available. We've had tremendous success with that. That's most of my training program are short courses. But, yep. you know, I, when I go on the road, I do one and two day classes. Why? Because when I travel, I need to make enough to make it worth right. leaving home and not teaching at home. So I, I understand the traveling trainer world. Uh, it's really a lot of the book. That first part of the book is focused on local trainers and their potential students. Yep. So, dude, uh, I, I really relate to a lot of what you're saying there because <clears throat> I was actually making a correlation to the c competition shooting world, right? And why many people don't get into shooting competitively. And I think the biggest roadblock for many shooters is they don't think, they, they don't really know where to get started, right? Uh, they think they need all this fancy gear when the reality is they, they need to just really show up to a match and just give it a shot. Right. And so like if you can get somebody's feet wet, then they usually go, Oh wow. Like this was not only not not only was it easier than they thought it was going to be as far as just getting started, and that they find out the community is very helpful and friendly and willing to lend gear that maybe they don't have that they actually, you know, maybe need and the, you know, they only they showed up with uh uh, you know, let's <laughs> I've seen people show up to a to a three gun match with a Smith and Wesson, you know, M P shield as their cider, right. which, Hey, you know what? Good for good on you. Like you showed up to this match, going to shoot a shield at a three gun match, like way to go. And they, they made it through a, a stage or two and it was kind of brutal. <laughs> you know, you have a stage where it's like 40 shots with a shield. That's a bit brutal on a stage. And you know, before they know it, Hey, why don't on this next stage, you can just borrow my rig, you know, we'll throw my belt on you and, and you can use my gun and my holster. Just give it a try. And, you know, that's how the community is. So just getting started a lot of times, like to me, that's the hardest thing for a lot of, a lot of folks. And it's true in the defensive and tactical uh, training environment as well, or even just taking any class at all, like getting somebody's feet wet. They spend four hours on the range with a reputable, you know, competent instructor. They're probably going to want to come back for more and go, wow, I got so much of that four hours. I can't only imagine what I'd get out of, you know, a day or a weekend with, with Carl or with somebody else, you know? Right. The, the thing I've run into as a long time, you know, shooting competitor and running matches and all that, uh, there's, there's kind of different categories of people. There are people who won't go shoot competition because they correctly view it as a test mm -hmm. and you don't go take the test unless you've done the homework or taken the class. And so, for example, we run an intro to competition course that goes over the rules and we run a simulated match and we, we sort of guide people through. During the summer, I run weekday evening matches that are sort of get your feet wet kind of things where we have loaner gear and all that. And that's all good. The problem I run into is people that mistake going to a match as a substitute for training. Because at yeah. a match, all you're doing is testing the skills you already have. You're not, there's no time to go back and analyze what you did. There's no time to run it again and fix it. There's no explanation as to what you're supposed to do. It's really, you're just taking a test and you don't learn that much from testing without the homework in between. Yep. And so, you know, really the way I tell people to do it is take some classes, understand, and I'll give them guidance. Like here's, you know, here's some baseline. Once you get to this level, you can go to a match and you're, you're good to go. You're ready to go shoot a match and you'll do okay. Um, so there's a balance in there. Regular monthly matches are great as a way to practice and, and reinforce the skills. But people that only shoot their one match a month and delude themselves into thinking that that's practice or that they're improving, that really doesn't happen. That you, you have to do the homework before you take the test. And yeah. so that's part of what the, the, we get into in the book is you know, how to practice and, and all that. And there's a lot of good books on that that's out there. I'm a big fan of Ben Steger's books on dry fire and his books on how to practice. I think that's a good program. Mike Seeklander has some great materials. His books, his you know, very methodical programs, uh, much more in-depth than what we have in our little book. You know, Get yourself a plan. And if you want to get better, you need a plan and you need a structure and you need to measure as you go. 
so it, you know that's a, that but very few people i mean think about how many times you go to the range how many people are there at the range that they actually wrote down and said i'm going to run this drill and my goal is to shoot this score that's not how it works people just put up a target they got two boxes of ammo they shoot their two boxes of ammo and oh that's pretty good i did okay well, you don't really know what okay is. You didn't measure it. You just told yourself you shot okay. And then, you know, hopefully you'll never be tested in a real situation and find out whether okay is really okay enough. Uh, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of where I come from is, is what I'd like to see more people going to the range with a plan and a goal. And then, then they know, am I good enough? Am I getting better? Uh, the shooting world just doesn't work that way. The vast majority of people, that is just not how it works. Yep. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you there. Um, you learn a lot about your, you learn a lot about how to train, how to practice, what to practice by going to a lot of, you know, to, by going to a good training course. Like that's my goal yes. Oh, in, yes. in the students that we teach is te not just like, we're not just teaching them, Hey, this is how you do this. This is how you shoot that. No, it's, it's more than, it's bigger than that. It's, I want them to be able to leave my class and go home and do dry fire and go to their local range or go to their home range, their club, whatever, and know what to do and how to do it and make the best of their time. You know, so they actually are going to the range. Now they know because they've come through one of our classes, I am really not that strong in these areas. And I now have the skills and not just on not just the shooting skills, but the the skills of how to practice those various things that that they came you know and learned in one of our classes. And I know that's that's a big deal for you. I think that's part of standards to a degree. Like by having that measure that measuring stick, and you talked about that. I know that's a big deal in your world. By having standards, you know, hey, this is this is a performance standard. <clears throat> I need to achieve this level. I failed in getting there. Well you have that measuring stick, but then there's a secondary piece and the secondary piece is also knowing how to get to that, to that level as well. So oh, how to get to where you want to, what, what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. I mean, we, the nice thing is now we live in a world where there is a lot of good information available online. If you, if you recognize the sources and you seek out credible sources for information, you can learn a tremendous amount for free between free, you know, Kindle Unlimited books and blog articles and, you know, podcasts and videos, there's, there's a lot of good information and somebody that is motivated can learn a lot. Uh, the only thing they have to be careful of is, is and I comment on this in the book, and, and, you know, and I know some of the people on that list, but it's, um, somebody made a list of the 40 biggest social media influencers in the gun world. Well, Reality is the, there was only four names out of that 40 that were people that had actual shooting credentials as trainers or competitors or anything that was significant mm. that indicated they were actually subject matter experts and trying to sort out who is credible and who is not. That's become a big challenge for people that are interested because there's lots of entertainment channels that put out a lot of fun things to watch. But I mean, even even this week, and I, I won't pick on the author, but the uh, NRA Shooting Illustrated put out an article that's been you know widely just ripped from others in the training community because of the content. And sometimes we just we don't know what we don't know if we travel in our own little bubble, if we don't criss crisscross and and switch switch from group to group. Uh, you know, a lot of trainers they haven't trained with competition people or they haven't trained with tactical people, they haven't trained with military, they haven't trained with law enforcement, anybody that's serious about being a trainer, you should at least have one from each of those categories. If you've never taken a class that's yeah. from a pure competition person, you should go do that. If you've never taken a class from somebody that's a pure military background, do that. If you haven't taken a class from somebody with law enforcement background, if you've only trained with you know bearded operators, <laughs> you know that's you need to get out of your bubble and but make sure you find somebody credible because there is credible and not credible on all of those communities. And, uh, you know, that's, that's something I talk about in the book about, uh, about standards and mm -hmm. which programs are challenging and which ones are not. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, competition, getting out to a first competition, Richard here says he's attending his first IDPA match in three weeks. So good for you, Richard. I'm really excited to see that. Let us know how that goes. And then also talking about credible trainers, uh, there's a question from Mark. He's asking uh, about attending a ShivWorks class. And uh, 
Craig Douglas, I think basically Mark is like, hey, is that worthwhile? Because it's over a weekend and it's 500 bucks. And I'll just say Craig Douglas is the man. And I know that you've hosted and you've taken classes from Craig Douglas, uh, Carl. So uh, tell, tell us what you know about ShivWorks. Oh my gosh. Well, Craig and I go back to day one. Uh, Paul Gomez, who was Craig's original partner in ShivWorks, Paul was a very good friend of mine. I hosted some of the very, very first ECQC classes when they were developing the program. Yeah, I've taken ECQC three times. I've hosted it more times than that. I see Craig a couple of times a year, seems like, in various places. And, uh, you know, he comes through Texas a lot. That course is really useful from a psychological standpoint. And here's, I guess this is where Craig and I differ slightly. Uh, I'm also a big fan of John Korea with active self-protection because John, like me, is a data guy and he's looked at thousands and thousands of shooting incidents. And the material that Craig teaches, the grappling and, and all that stuff, it's useful, but it's not necessarily the kind of situation you're actually going to get into. It could be. But statistically, it doesn't appear like it's going to be. But where Craig's class has real value is the mental toughness that the physical exertion in the close quarters and the uh, the stress, mental stress that he puts you under that translates to other things. And so, yes, absolutely. I think everybody should take ECQC at least once because, number one, no matter how good you think you are, you're probably only going to win about half the time, if that. And you're going to see how ugly that kind of fight is and how things can go horribly wrong for everyone. Uh, it will it will make you realize that you can't let people get that close to you, that you need to be more proactive mm-hmm. about keeping your distance. And it's going to get rid of some of the myths that you had about, well, I would just do this or I would just do that. You can try all those things. And a lot of those, I would just do this or that turn out, they don't work very well. Craig's pretty good at explaining what you could do. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good opportunity, particularly if you're, you're young and fit and in pretty good health that, uh, you know, the class is more physically demanding than probably anything else you're going to take, but, and probably psychologically a little more stressful than some of the other classes you could take. But absolutely. I've trained with Craig a bunch of times. I recommend his stuff highly. And certainly he should be on everybody's, I should do this at least once list. Yep. And Mark says he really appreciates your feedback on this. Yes. Uh, Mark, I, I'm confident you will not be disappointed at all taking a class from Craig. So yeah, hop on that. But if you have the opportunity and you've got the, the cash and the time, I, I would encourage that. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, cool. All right. So you, you, you only kind of touched on a little bit, uh, uh, Carl. Uh, and I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Again, going beyond the one percent. Okay, so so here's here's a little bit of a pi- paradigm shift I'm going to throw at you. Um, so you talked about how basically about one percent of carry permit holders really do anything beyond their minimum, you know, state standards. Um, here's the other thing. My personal feeling or or theory is, yeah, that's probably true as far as those that actually take handgun training, especially defensive handgunning, handgun training seriously. Uh, but so there may only be 1% that go beyond that minimum standard. But of that 1%, there's also, in my opinion, a small percentage that really get, you know, anywhere at all as far as like get to a, to a, a, a fairly proficient level. So I'm curious on your thoughts on that and uh, what other uh, tips or suggestions or ideas you've got on this idea of, of kind of like leveling up and, and becoming more than just, you know, an average shooter and an average defensive minded individual. Oh, absolutely. The, the, uh, at the risk of constant self-promotion, I'll say that the whole third section of the book is about that. Everything, what I did in, in the book was we broke everything down relative to the USPSA 100% standard for Grandmaster. Why? Because they have dozens and dozens of classifier stages and you can break those down and you can diagnose and figure out, okay, this is what a Grandmaster has to be able to do to shoot those scores. So if you work backward from that, you can sort of reverse engineer the rest of it. Here's, you know, here's mm-hmm. the, the quick answer on that. The average person needs to be about 50% skill of a USPSA GM. That's roughly what your average police officer can do when they get out of a police academy. That's roughly what graduates from a two, three, or four-day pistol school like a Gunsight 250, which is the course everything else is modeled on realistically. Uh, but you know, eventually, reality is you're probably going to need somewhere between 30 and 40 hours of formal training 
and or practice and work on your own to get to a level that you can meet some of the drills that we have in our book as the 50% standard. We have our little 20 round drill called three seconds or less. We carefully engineered it to make every string in it roughly about 50% of Grandmaster. We err on the side of smaller targets because under stress, you're going to shoot worse. And so instead of a giant B27 or some 24 inch wide target and hey, we're happy to get hits on the paper, uh, we're focused more on, on tighter groups because that historically, you look at all the programs that have produced really good shooters, that's what they do. Four to six inch targets. That's why IDPA recently changed their scoring to you know criti- uh, penalize misses outside the zero down ring more. They're trying to motivate people to get better at hitting the targets because that's the part that actually matters. And so you know, going beyond that, really what it takes is repetition. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll reference Tom Givens on this. Tom, Tom has a great philosophy about that. He says, look, if you can dry fire your gun for 10 to 15 minutes a couple of times a week, then if you need your gun, it's never been more than two or three days since you last did a dry draw from concealment, got a sight picture, and pressed the trigger properly. There's a lot of adult learning theory that says low intensity, high frequency, high quality repetition builds skills that are essentially automatic. They occur without thinking. If you only if you take a two-day handgun class and then you do no practice on those skills, you don't do anything but just go down to the indoor range and plunk around with no plan and no timer. The things that you had at the end of that class are going to deteriorate. And so if you'll do a little bit more serious practice and try to make it a little more frequent, you don't have to shoot a thousand rounds a week, but it's the frequency of it and making sure that you're doing it right and making sure that you're doing it quickly. It's the same thing Ben Steger talks about in his book, you know, to get to grandmaster, he said, you need to, you know, do 15 to 30 minutes or more a day dry practice. And really to improve, it takes, you know, Michael Plaxico in the nineties was telling people, if you're not dry, if you're not shooting your gun and handling your gun at least three days a week, you're not improving. You yeah. know, talking about level up. If you want to level up, you need to put your hand on your gun every day. You can do dry practice. Dry practice is free. If you don't understand how valuable dry practice is, if you don't understand how to fire multiple shots in dry fire, there's cert pistols, there's cool fire, there's the e-trainer. Uh, there's all manner of products that are out there that you can use that your dry fire should be more than slow press the trigger for one shot and rack the slide. Dry fire magazines, uh, laser light guns. Gosh, there's so much out there that you can use that you need to learn how to dry practice effectively and then spend some time on it at home. You don't have to drive to the range. You don't have to shoot ammo. Then when you go to the range, make the most of it, get two good hours or one good hour of practice in that's structured. That's how you're going to improve. If you're, if you have no structure to your practice and you have no goals, you're not going to improve. Yep. And, oh, oh. and that's, that's the, that's the thing most shooters do not understand or they're unmotivated to work on. That's the hardest thing, right? Is, that motivation. It, it's like how many of us struggle with a regimented, you know, workout program for, you know, physical health, for physical strength, right? Like getting to the gym, like some do very well with it, uh, but they're definitely the exception rather than the rule. And the right. Same is- and I actually talk about that in the book. I reference a lot of papers that were written in the fitness industry. Uh, people's interest in fitness is either they're either junkies and they're there all the time and they can't, you know, they, they, the day isn't complete if they don't get the workout in. But for the mass, vast majority of people, it only becomes critical right before swimsuit season or <laughs> you need to look good for something and you put the time in. It's first of the year and you go get your gym membership and you go for a month and then, then you let it go. I totally get that. I'm one of those people. I, I am totally unmotivated to go to the gym every day. Uh, I know it's good for me and I still good for you. And that's the point we make in the book. Good for you is not the way it's got to be fun. You've got to like it. You've got to have some motivation to do it. And so uh, our goal really was to set the bar not up at the top tier. We're not telling people, go try to be an IDPA master. We're just trying to give people a reasonable, that whole second section of the book is, look, here's the stuff you really do need to be able to do. It doesn't take forever to get there. It just takes a little bit of effort. Buy yourself uh, a dry fire mag, find some way to do a little dry practice and just put it on your calendar 15 minutes once or twice a week. That's it doesn't take as much as you think it does. You just have to decide that it matters. But honestly, it goes back to most people don't carry. They get their carry permit and then, uh, you know, then they they don't carry because they don't really think it's going to happen to them. 
And so it's too hard. It's too much of an inconvenience. I'm going to bolt a holster in my car and I'll, you know, put the gun in the car. And then when I go into the 7-Eleven, I'm just going to leave the gun in the car because I'm just going in for a minute. Nothing bad's going to happen, which of course that's mm-hmm. when the bad thing's going to happen. Uh, you know, it's all about, it's all about motivation. And yep. the more you think you might actually need it, the more likely you are to use it. You know, Tom Givens tells his students, he's had 67 involved in, in fatal, not fatal, but in shootings where shots were fired. And then he's got three that were killed because they didn't have a gun on when they needed it. And he doesn't refer to those as losses. He refers to those as forfeits because they weren't actually in the fight. They were, they just basically gave up because they weren't psychologically prepared. So on the self-defense side, geez, if you have to choose between taking a training class and carrying a gun, uh, you know, start by carrying the gun. Just have it with you. Just have it yep. with you. Start with that. Motivate yourself to carry every day. Let's start there. And then, okay, now if you're carrying every day, the motivation to get better or at least to keep skills to a reasonable level, that will come. Yep. A uh, comment here from Justin just popped in. He says, that is so correct. You have to, you have to have, you have to have to want to do it. I completely agree. I have absorbed so much information on shooting handguns. I just have to do it more to get better. And, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking about this, you know, thinking again back to some of my friends that are like workout junkies, right? And like what separates someone like them from someone like me or you, you know, admittedly you, uh, Carl. And like I look at their pictures they post on social or whatever. And for them, it's exactly that. It's fun. It's exciting for them. Like they get a thrill, they get a high from going to the gym and working out. I am a big time gun shooting junkie, dry fire junkie. I dry fire every day because I get a high. <laughs> I enjoy it. It's fun. Right. And we have to make it yeah. fun. And I think yeah. for some people, like we're we're also too, I think, in a very special age, Carl, where there's a lot of tools uh, available now because of technology and everything that is making dry fire more fun than it, especially than it ever used to be. Absolutely, yeah. That's that's a huge thing. And, and you know, I don't know how much you follow the competition world, but you know, Ben Steger sort of popped out of nowhere. I don't know now; it's probably like seven or eight years ago. But I mean, he dry fired in his basement in Wisconsin. And when he showed up, he went from unclassified to grandmaster shooting less than 8,000 rounds of live ammo in practice because he read everything there was to read. He watched all the videos. He figured out how to practice. And then he practiced at home and figured out how to use dry fire with no ammo, figured it all out. And by the time he got put an ammo in the gun, all he had to figure out was recoil control. It's really, you know, his approach, he wasn't the first person to do it, but certainly he made the biggest splash. Yeah. And it does take some work to, to get there, but now we know how to do it. There's Annette Evans has a great book. Ben has a great book. Steve Anderson has a great book. There's dry fire training cards. You know, there's all this technology. Uh, it's not as much fun as shooting real ammo. I like to shoot real ammo and that's, you know, but I have my own place to do it and it's easy for me to go and do it. Not everybody has access to a range. Not everybody can draw from a holster on their range. So you have to, but you can't let all those things stop you. You have to say, look, I'm just going to do a little right? It's, it's, you know, do 10 pushups once a day, dry fire your gun 10 times a day, do a little, tell yourself that's good enough. And that's better than the 1%, you know, yeah. uh, that even that little bit of effort gets you past the 1% and that stuff has value. And as you improve, you'll get pleasure from that. Right. And that you will get, uh, it's like the question about ECQC. First time I took ECQC was a morally, physically crushing experience. And I made myself go back and host it and take it several more times because of the challenge of it. And the third time through, I felt like I was actually in control of what I was doing and I was able to function at a better level. But I had done supplemental training before and after, you know, building up some skills, doing some other other training to be better prepared for it. And I had thought about it a lot about what came out of those first two. And I'm not going to say that I'm a master at that material at all. I would say I got to the, you know, 50% level where I was capable of getting through it and not totally flailing and being completely panicked and overwhelmed. And you know, that's a good place to be. Sometimes yeah. when you're out of your comfort zone, uh, it's okay to, to be there. It's okay to work through it because if you put the time in and get through it, then you really feel like you got something. And there is some sense of value that comes from that. Agreed. I remember probably at least a decade ago now, uh, first time I ever like 
truly dry fire practiced. Uh, I read some something, I'm trying to remember what, it was an article in, it was a magazine, I don't remember if it was, I don't think it was Guns and Ammo, but it was like Guns and Ammo, one of those mags. I was subscribing to a bunch of magazines, you know, way, way back, and uh, I'm reading an article about dry fire practice, and I was like, I've never thought of that before. You know, this is before I even ever ever even came close to considering becoming an instructor or anything like that. And I was like, "Huh, what's this dry fire thing?" Okay. Yeah, maybe I'll try that. And there was some simple little drill in that article. I think it was just about dr- uh, drawing, you know, and pressing the trigger. I mean, there was no thing there was nothing like a cert pistol. There was right you know, airsoft gas blowback, like that was, it probably existed, but you know, it wasn't as big a deal as it is now. So the the idea was take your live gun, make it safe and draw and press the trigger one time on the target, you know? And I, I actually did that for like 15 minutes and I was like, Oh, okay. All right. You know, and it was probably the first time. No, that's not true. It's not the first time I ever drew from a holster and shot, but, but like it's the first time I like, I think it was the first time I started to think about it seriously. But admittedly, I didn't really start practicing regularly until probably eight years ago, eight eight or nine years ago, and then then it started to become a thing. And I remember when the cert pistol came on, you know, on the market. Uh, what has that been now? Five, six years now, something at like least, that. At least maybe it's been seven. It's been a while, and uh, boy, that was a game changer for me. And I was frustrated at first because I was not a Glock shooter at the time. And it was shaped like a Glock. And right. I, I I held off for a while buying, you know, for a few months. I, I, I was aware of the product and I thought, hmm, I like the idea. I think I should get that, but it's a Glock. I don't shoot Glock. I don't like Glock, but I got it. And I'll tell you, even though I was not a Glock shooter and it didn't feel right in my hand, I spent about 15 to 20 minutes every day for a month even just just practicing every day with that sir pistol. And it started making dry fire more fun because... I got some feedback, you know, from the laser. I could see when I was, you know, moving, shaking, jerking, etc. Right. Um, right. And the trigger reset, you know, every time. So I didn't have to rack slides and do all this it's weird bad. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I started doing it 15, 20 minutes a day. And in a month, and I, I remember I didn't even like, I don't think I went to the range that month. And after a month of just regularly dry firing, I noticed in substantial improvement the next time I went to the range substantial like I would not I, even even now I think back to it I'm like I did not think I would go from being able to do just even drawing from the holster and putting around like probably at that time I could probably draw from the holster and put around on target in one and a half seconds and that's a pretty good standard that's solid but in a month I went from being able to do that in one and a half to doing it in like a second sure you know and that was a that was a big difference for me and like a big like holy crap I'm fast you know like that sudden and and that just like energized me even more for for continuing on because I went and I knew I wasn't going to go from a second to a half second that's ridiculous right but but seeing that and then I realized there's other things I could be working on and getting better on and I could see so much improvement so that became like and I think that's sometimes what needs to happen is someone needs to see like you said they need to see some results they need to see some improvement and then go oh wow like this this is actually worth worth it to me and it's fun because I'm improving you know as I go as well well the, the other piece of it and and what motivated a large chunk of the book was the people that don't do anything. Uh, there's a, there's a thing called Dunning Kruger. It's a, a mindset and it comes down to the people telling you, I shoot good enough. I can't tell you how many times mm-hmm. I've heard that line and, Oh, I shoot good enough. Okay. What's good enough. How do we measure that? How good is good enough? How do you know you shoot good enough? When did you measure your skill? Right. And what it comes down to is it's comforting psychologically for me to believe that I shoot good enough because that, that exempts me from testing and or training and or doing any work. And, you know, luckily most people don't end up in a situation where they have to shoot Hmm. You know, 90 something percent of the defensive gun uses simply comes down to, I had my gun, I got it out. And the other person saw the gun and said, Oh my, look at the time. I've got, I've got to go do something else now. Uh, And often the distances are very close and if you watch videos of real incidents, often as soon as the first shot is fired, people run. And so the number of incidents where actually going beyond simply having the gun, getting it out and be willing to shoot when, it's, when shooting is needed 
then you get into the skill issues. Mm. And, and that's the part where that determines who wins and who loses in those situations. So the good yeah. news for the average armed person is, well, if you'll just have the gun with you and have it loaded, please don't carry with a round in the uh, empty, uh, empty chamber. Please, please don't do that. Uh, if you don't carry with a round in the chamber, you need to get training or something to get you comfortable with that idea because that, that is a big error that people make, and I don't understand that at all. But uh, yeah. you know, carry, carry the gun, have it ready, and then understand when to use it and when not to use it. That's one thing that like Craig's class ECQC or the scenario based force on force that we do, you know, that teaches you when, because honestly, the bigger mistakes and we talk about it in the book, Claude Werner's written extensively mm-hmm. on uh, the stuff called negative outcomes. And it turns out that most of the mistakes that people make, number one is not having a gun with them. You know, and the number two is not understanding when they should draw, when mm-hmm. they should shoot or when they should not shoot. And the decision making part of it. You may shoot good enough, but you have no idea if you can make decisions good enough if you haven't done scenario-based training, if you haven't done video simulator training, if you haven't done uh, taken a legal class, that sort of thing. So if you look at avoiding the mistakes that untrained people make, those are the big ones. Sloppy, unsafe gun handling and bad use of force decisions and good live fire training will help you with that and enhancing that with some of these other things. We have a challenge coin program on the Mm. front of the book. We have a picture of the little challenge coin. If you do 40 hours of training with us, you get a challenge coin. Well, that includes four hours of scenario based simunition training and three hours of red gun training. So you get seven of that 40 hours is scenario based training where it's not just going on the range and shooting. There are situations where you have to decide what you're going to do and what you're going to say. That stuff's super important. And Mm. state carry permit classes, again, they don't include that stuff. And so if you don't go beyond the 1%, you don't get that practice. You don't get to make the mistakes that might put you in jail. You don't get to make those in an environment where uh, the mistakes won't kill you or end your life and put you in jail. And that stuff, I think, is every bit as important as the skills training. You know, that's my beef with competition shooters. Oh, I don't need to take a training class. I'm, you know, I'm an A-class USPSA shooter. Yeah, but, but you're an unclassified scenario-based force-on-force, solve a problem with pepper spray or my words or my movements and not using my gun. None of that's tested on match day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those that are competition people that think they don't need training because they're already good at <coughs> shooting, they don't see the whole picture either. That assumes they carry. There's folks that are, you know, top tier competition shooters that don't carry, and I don't understand that either. But that's, you know, that's them. That's their choice. Yeah. Good, good thoughts, Ben. Um, let's uh, shift gears just a little bit, and I promise we would talk about red dots. So, oh, Carl, uh, give us. I mean, I know we could probably spend, and I think we'll probably talk about it some more tonight in the GN Live. Uh, I think that'd be an appropriate setting to, to maybe dive a little bit deeper. But we're starting to see this trend where more and more shooters are putting red dots on their guns, and especially their defensive handguns. And so give folks kind of like the two to three minute synopsis of, of, of all the research that you've done and, and kind of your findings and, and your, your theories behind the red dot use on a, on a handgun. Well, the thing that I'm best known for is we did about 120 shooter study. We got some funding from Texas A&M University, and we did some some drills. And what we focused on was ready to first shot five and ten yards. Why? Because that's the vast majority of self defense incidents. You know, car length is five yards from you know down the hall to your mm-hmm. front door is ten yards. And so we didn't want to test people's draw skills from a holster. We wanted to be able to test a wide variety of of people. So we did a test. We had guns with iron sights. We had guns with projection lasers. We had guns with red dots with no backup irons. We had guns with red dots with backup irons. And we ran 120 shooters through roughly 30 in each group, 30 novices, 30 carry permit people, 30 people that had had some training, and 30 people that were the uh, instructor or high-level shooter level. And you know what we found was with those people that they weren't significantly better with the red dot than they were with irons. The more experience they had with shooters, the, the closer their skill level was with the irons. Everybody shot irons and the laser better than they shot the red dot with or without. Without the backup irons was the worst. And because they bring the gun up and if they couldn't find the dot, we only gave them a second and a half from a ready position. I mean, the average untrained person 
at five yards, if you just tell them lift the gun up and point it at the target and pull the trigger, they can do that in 0.5 to 0.7 seconds with almost no training at all. Mm. So a second and a half to us seem like an eternity. What happens with the red dot for those that are haven't done the time and haven't really figured out how to use them? They bring the gun up. They can't find the dot. There's no visual information as to help them how to reorient the gun to find the dot and the clock runs out. And what I see on the low end of the scale are people that are taking the rear sights off their pistols, putting an expensive red dot on their gun, and then they just have it as a toy, but they don't put the work in to learn how to find that dot and they don't have the backup irons. And so uh, I do know there's products out now. Delta Point now makes a site with an integral rear, uh, rear sight and there's some better technology out there. But what, what I think got me, uh, there's a certain subset of the market. There are people who are making money selling red dot classes, selling red dot gear. All the vendors are in the money-making business. So red dots are great for people that are making money off of it. Um, I will teach you how to run, run a red dot. I don't run a red dot specific class. I have shot red dot guns since the early 90s as an IPSC open competitor I spent some time a couple of years ago with a slide-mounted red dot. I got a Grandmaster rating, rating in uh, USPSA carry optics. So I know how to run those guns. Um, they take a little bit of work, and they, you need to invest. If you're going to put a red dot on your gun, get backup irons, set the gun up properly, and then put do the work. You know That's my standard line. I, broken record. Go measure your skills. Pick the 10 drills in my book. Pick any set of drills that you can't shoot a perfect score on. Go shoot those drills. Measure what you can do with your iron-sided gun. Put your red dot on your gun. Work until you can get at least as good a score with your red dot gun. Then if it, if it takes you beyond that, it makes you better at 15 and 25 yards, great. That's yeah. great. But if you just put it on there and you're thinking, well, I can buy skill and I can put this on there, the truth is that's not really, you know, you may, if you don't measure your performance, there's this thing that happens in the audio world, right? Musicians will buy a new piece of gear and they're, everybody's like, oh, it sounds better. I got my water-cooled directional stereo, you know, speaker cables mm -hmm. and makes my stereo sound better. Well, how mm -hmm. do you prove that? Well, it just sounds better to me. Well, of course it sounds better to you. You just drop a thousand dollars on, you know, some gimmick, uh, unproven <laughs> thing and you've got ego investment. Yeah. I spent all this money. It must be good. Confirmation right? bias. Yeah, you spend 600 700 bucks on a red dot, you get your slide milled, you do all this special stuff. Well, you've already bought in. You're not thinking objectively. You're just you've bought in. Oh, I'm just I'm going to go down this road. Uh, at Tacon this year for the first time in 20 years, the top scores were shot by people that had red dots on their guns. Did they conclusively absolutely shoot way better than people that didn't? No. There were people that had red dots on their guns that didn't make the shoot off. There are people who were in yep. shot well in the main match who in the first le leg of the shoot off didn't make the shoot off. You know, it's just a way of aiming the gun. It doesn't fix bad trigger press. It doesn't fix bad grip. It doesn't fix bad fundamentals. There's a lot of, you know, it's, it's just another way of aiming the gun. It's going to buy you five to 10%. If you work at it, mostly on shots past 10 yards, if it works for you, that's great. But if you're going to go down that road, just be honest with yourself, measure your skills, evaluate, am I really better with this gun? Your life depends on it, right? And so you should, you should try to figure that out. Otherwise, all you're doing is playing with toys and you're just kind of fooling yourself without really understanding what you have. And that's, that makes me unpopular, I know, with people that are in the red dot training and red dot selling business, but I think that's a reasonable thing to ask. I think that's a reasonable approach to take. Yeah. That's a really great summary. Um, so this is this is true in my own experience. In the last year, I've started experimenting more and more with red dots. I all last season I shot with a red dot in competition. Uh, mm -hmm. Three gun is what is mostly what I shoot. So so that moved me into the open division, and immediately I was I was competing in open division with not a lot of open division worthy gear necessarily. I was shooting a, a red dot on a Sig X five you know three twenty pistol. And uh, everybody else is running, you know, high, high, high end 2011s, uh, right. <laughs> you know. Well, the, the big difference is if you mount the scope to the frame, mm -hmm. it doesn't move. It doesn't move, right. Trigger. And the difference in performance, you look at old Ipsic open guns and with a compensator and a red dot that's mounted to the frame, you can run splits without ever losing the dot. Yeah. Like shooting an AR with a red dot. 
And that's one thing that happens. People want to interpolate their experience shooting an AR with a red dot and say, oh, when I mount a dot on the slide of my pistol, it's going to be just the same. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of the same, but not really because the dot's yeah. moving around. And you know, often what happens is people wait longer and they don't understand what they can do up close. And the guys that run the red drop training classes, I think that's one of the things that they wake people up to. With irons, you can get away with sloppy sight pictures on close targets. With a dot, all you have is one thing. You have dot. And if you don't understand what a sloppy sight picture is with a red dot and how to use that, then that makes you slow up close. You don't have to be, but it can make you slow up close. And yep. so that's one of those things, the red dot trainer guys, they do a pretty good job at explaining, explaining that to people, which is good. Um, yep. But that's, that's one of the challenges there. Yes. I, I, so again, I've been experimenting with it and I would agree that there's, there is not, any measurable gain and sometimes a, a negative gain uh, from running a red dot in those five to 10 to maybe even 15 yard distances. But definitely where I've noticed it's made a huge difference for me was shooting at 20 and 25 and even 75. I shot a match last year here in Colorado sure. where we had uh, 40 yard, 50, maybe it was 50, 75 and 90 yard shots with a pistol. Right. Yeah. And there were some shooters that on that, especially on a 90 yard target, they were, they were struggling. And well, yeah, I mean, traditional irons are going to probably cover up the whole target. Exactly. That, it, that's always been my beef about the, you know, the excess big dot sites is they're so huge at, you know, 10 yards, they're covering up the head, the head. If you're trying to make a headshot, they cover up the whole thing. So, yep. yeah. And that's actually sort of what, uh, Aaron Cowan did some work running a red dot guns and force on force scenarios. And both he and John Holshin have commented on that, that if you can essentially use a target focus and you can look through the window and you don't block out so much of the target, right? You're just, you're looking through the gun and there's a red dot on the target. That's the benefit in the force on force side of it. Yeah, that's, it's all true. And you look at, I don't know, 30 years of steel challenge scores and the folks shooting red dots have always performed better at steel challenge than the people without. And that's because so many of the steel challenge targets are smaller and they're, you know, 15, 20, 40 yards out that when you have an event that, that prefers more difficult shots further away, then you see the, the value of the red dot become more useful. Whereas if it's an IDPA match and everything is 15 yards or closer, may not you may not see the separation as much yep so it's it's uh, you know it's what depends on what you're going to be doing with it and uh, the other thing with the red dot is if you don't learn that you have holdover just like on a rifle if you don't learn that up close you've got to aim high on stuff then you could be doing everything right and shooting a bunch of minus ones on idpa you'd be dropping shots because you're aiming you're aiming at the center of something and you're hitting the bottom of something because you did, didn't really pay attention to your holdover. Yep. Like on and a headshot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that people have to learn that. And if you don't practice, right, if you just put the dot on your gun, oh, okay, I'm going to shoot at the next match, and you don't go to the range and check it, well, you know, no big surprise what happens to you on match day. Yeah. You got to do the homework before you take the test. In, in your experience, just because you've you know spent some time uh, shooting red dots and studying the topic, what do you think is a good distance to zero a red dot at? Uh, 15 to 18 yards, I think is good. That's where I zero my irons at. And, you know, basically inside of 15, everything's going to be low. You're going to have holdover. And beyond that, then, you know, if you're, if you know, like in three gun match, if you know, you're going to have 50 yard targets, zero it at 15 to 18, and then go back and check it. Right. And you may find depending on your site and your gun, there's too much holdover one place or the other, but it's really just understanding. I have to do this to get that. Mm-hmm. So at 50, you know, if you need to just need to, I would check it. I check my guns at, you know, 25, 50, sometimes all the way out to 75 because it's good to know what I have. It's good to know what, what I have to do to get the result I want. And again, I very common problem in all my classes, you know, you ask what range do you zero your guns at zero? I've never zeroed my gun. I got it out of the box and I shoot it like, Okay. So, you know, some of my classes, we actually, I make students zero their guns at 25 yards from a bench rest as the first thing of class, because at some point you really need to know that stuff. Yep. And again, nobody does it. Nobody does it. Nobody cares. 
they just assume I just watched a, a YouTube video of a guy, you know, pooping all over the Glock 43 X because he got out of the box and it shot to the left. Okay. Big deal. So what the sites move, tap them over, fix it. You know, <laughs> no, it, it should come from the factory sighted in Carl. Don't you know that? <laughs> well, no, he may have got a Monday gun and I've got a Glock 48 and out of the box, it shot to the left. I had to tap the sights over and now it shoots fine and it didn't have to knock them completely off the gun. But you know, you look at yep. it from the top, you go, well, those are not exactly centered up on the slide. Well, I also have a Smith and Wesson easy 380 had the same problem. Yep. Uh, you no, know, it's that's, that's something that happens and the guns are designed to shoot pretty much point of impact, but they don't always work out that way. And with your load and your ammo and your eyeballs and all the other stuff, you know, just got to fix it, figure it out, fix it, make it work for you. Uh, if the gun shoots, you know, I was getting two inch groups at 25 yards out of my Glock 48 from bench rust. And so what if I had to tap, tap the sights over? That's a pretty darn accurate little, you know, pocket gun. For uh, sure. I was super happy with that. It's like, wow, this, this combination of load and gun, that's way inside, you know, three inches at 25 is fine. And anything under that is you know, bonus. So I was happy with that. I didn't, I didn't go poop all over it on the internet. It's like, oh, this is. This is okay. <laughs> the Glock 48 is, I, I noticed you've been rocking that a little bit. And uh, that's. I have, I, have, I have little hands. Yeah. And I was a single stack 1911 guy for a long time. And uh, I didn't like the Glock 19s. They were fat for my fingers. And I tried a grip reduction on a 19 and it still didn't, didn't go for me. I was briefly flirted with the XDs when they came out. Clint Smith said they were okay. So that, you know, everybody said, well, we'll go try the XD for a while. And I ran that for a while and I had some breakage issues and uh, the M&P came out and I liked the grip angle and the way it ran. So I ran an M&P for a long, long time, but uh, the 48 came out and I'm like, you know, this is a nice little flat gun and 10 plus one should be okay. And, you know, statistically, that should be enough rounds to get me through almost anything that'll happen to me. Mm -hmm. And so with the Glock 48, I'm more likely to carry a spare mag than I used to be with the M and P holding, you know, 15, 16, 17. Um, but it prints a lot less. And, you know, my other hat that I wear is I'm a professional musician. I play music for money in front of people and the Glock 48 conceals a lot better when I am out in public doing stuff, particularly if I'm like sitting next to grand piano and people are literally sitting five feet from me at a table having dinner and they can see my waistline. Um, I, I like the fact that it doesn't print quite so much. It's just, and, it's just a mic pack. Yeah. Well, it's it's, just, yeah. <laughs> uh, the town, the town that I live in is fairly conservative. And so if anybody's noticed, nobody has said anything, but, uh, uh, I've musicians that I play with in bands on a regular basis who, uh, don't know or are surprised to find out that I, you know, carry when I perform on stage. And uh, so apparently they haven't noticed despite being sometimes within arm's reach of me. Uh, so I, I think I do a pretty good job with, uh, with not printing very much and being aware of it and trying to minimize it. So uh, between the small hands and the wanting a, a lower printing gun, uh, 48's been working out good for me so far. And uh, I'm going to keep running it a while longer and, probably shoot it the rest of the summer at least and, and keep on rocking with it. Uh, I am going to take a side side uh, down a, a different road this summer. I'm going to try to get Grandmaster in revolver in USPSA. And I'm not a double action revolver person, but I'm running out of divisions. I've got Grandmaster in five of the eight <laughs> divisions and I have single stack revolver and open. And I figure my eyes are starting to go and I better try to do the revolver one and just see if I can make it happen or not. Uh, I can't not guarantee have to work on those reloads. Well, yeah, luckily there's a local guy that made grandmaster in revolver last year and he's going to coach me. I'm going to coach him on limited and he's going to coach me on revolver. We're going to be practice buddies this summer. Um, so uh, that's, uh, that's kind of my summer project for fun and just because it'll be something different. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to tough it out with a, a double action revolver and, uh, and work on that. So that's, that's going to kind of be my little fun shooting goal to see what I can do. And we'll just see how far I go with it. And, you know, uh, we'll see where it goes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's probably about all the time we have today for the podcast. Uh, again, folks, tonight we're going to be having Carl on Guardian Nation Live, our monthly live broadcast that's available for Guardian Nation members. Just a reminder that uh, you can do a 14-day trial if you if you've been sitting on the fence 
There's no excuse to be sitting on the fence any longer. Go to concealedcarry.com forward slash try 14 day. Try 14 day. T-R-Y-1-4 D-A-Y, right? Try 14 day. Concealedcarry.com forward slash try 14 day. Sign up. Join us tonight for the concealedcarry.com Guardian Nation live broadcast. Carl's going to be back. We'll dig deeper on some more of these uh, subjects. But uh, Carl, thank you so much for all your time today on the podcast. This has been, oh, I mean, welcome. there's been comment after comment after comments come in that the, the content today, the information, you know, I, I've learned so much, you know, I've seen that comment several times here today. So thank Great. you, Carl. Um, one more, pl- one more plug for the book. Absolutely. If you go to blog, blog.krtraining.com, you can, there's a post there about the book, or you can go to krtraining.com if you want a signed copy, uh, PayPal me 20 bucks to Ren, R-E-H-N at krtraining.com, include your mailing address, and I will send you a book. I, I dig it, man. You, you just, boy, you threw that right out there. Just just PayPal the man some money. <laughs> That's right. Cool, man. And he'll make sure to sh- send you an autographed copy. And uh, again, Carl, uh, a, a great instructor and a great shooter. Uh, I wish you the best of luck in going after that Grandmaster status on Revolver. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. That's all. That's all I know. <laughs> At least there's not quite as many shooters that you're competing against. But the problem there uh, probably is that there's a couple of them that are really good on revolver. Well, I, I know what the high factors are. You know, I, yeah. I already have the roadmaps. Like I have to be able to run this drill in this much time with this many points. Yeah. And it's really just a matter of dry practice. The nice thing, revolver, I can dry practice till my brains, you know, fall out. And so I just need to. I'm going to do it like I did all the other ones. I'm going to work dry practice at home until I can run the drills in the times that I need to run them with acceptable sight pictures. And once I can do it in dry fire, then I will go to the range and put the ammo in the gun and try to make it happen with, with ammo. But what I have learned about how to do this is particularly with, for revolver, there's really no reason for me to go and burn money and time on the range and ammo until I can do you know, if I know I've got to be able to, to do a, say a two second build drill at seven yards. Well, I can practice two second build drills at seven yards down my hallway at home until I can do it. Yep. And once I can do it, okay, now let's see if I can do it with a gun going off. Uh, that's kind of how it works. And you just, it's, it's like, you know, learning your scales on the instrument. It's more hours, more repetition, just keep working, working, working and pushing for time. You want to try to go faster every time. And, uh, how many reps that's going to take? I don't know. Uh, hopefully it'll be, I have enough time to do the reps that it's going to take. And I may not, we'll find out, ask me in August or September and we'll see how, we'll see how it came out. Yep. You know, uh, one great thing about the DA revolvers is it's really easy to dry fire with. So it is, just it is press that trigger again and again and again. And I know that cause I've talked with Jerry Mitchell about this, that in his early days, he just pressed that trigger a lot. Yep. And he got really good. I hosted Jerry for a class years ago, and that was his number one comment. He said, get the gun in your hand, work the trigger, work the trigger, work the trigger. Yep. Uh, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> nice, that's man. Right on. Well, good stuff. We'll see you later tonight. Again, folks, that's at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. And uh, so, Carl, thanks again, buddy. Appreciate appreciate it. And, folks, uh, we appreciate you for being with us on this episode of the Concealed Carry Podcast. As you know, we end each episode by reminding you to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. that laws vary from place to place and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.